We're going to be in the book of Matthew, so you don't have to go find a book like Amos or something like that, uh, like you did last week. But if you want to go ahead and flip over to Matthew and get ready, we'll be there in a second. But in, in 2013, February of 2013, the country, Great Britain, went in and they shut down one of their slaughterhouses and one of their processing plants because they discovered that instead of making beef, the processing plant was selling and making horse meat. Right, I know, right? That's kind of weird. So one month after that, in March of 2013, in an unrelated event, Ikea discovered that in, in 13 different countries where Ikea is located, and, and you know, if you've ever been to Ikea, you can get their Swedish meatballs, those pork and beef meatballs. A month after that, they discovered that it wasn't pork and beef meatballs. If you ate those in 2013, you were eating horse meatballs. Yeah, pretty disgusting. So Iceland, in the wake of these two stories kind of hitting the national consciousness, Iceland does a review because they're, they're kind of close to Great Britain and kind of close to Sweden where Ikea is from. So they look into some of their plants, and, and the good news is no horse meat being used that they can find, but they did find a company that was selling beef pies that had no beef in it. They were using this vegetable mix that simulated the taste of beef, but they had no meat in it whatsoever. Now, I'll, I'll eat just about anything. I mean, I've been on mission trips, and, and you know, the rule on a mission trip is, is whatever the host that, in the country that you are serving with gives you, that's what you eat. When I was in Russia years ago, right after 1992, I mean, you're talking about communism has just fallen and, 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 and trying to become a free country. I'm sitting in the home of these people who spent what was a month's worth of their salary on a meal in front of us, and we ate it because of the great sacrifice. It was the worst thing I've ever tasted. That was terrible. But you do it because, you know, you're, you're on the mission field. And I mean, I, I think if I was on the mission field and they said, hey, here, we eat horse, okay, maybe. But that's just not normal, right? I mean, especially when you think you're getting one thing and you get something else. When you think you're getting Swedish meatballs and you're getting horse meat, that, that raises red flags and we go, hey, I don't care if it tasted good, I don't care if it tasted normal. That's not, that's not right. And we have a reaction to, more, more than something that's outside of the realms of normalcy, we have a reaction to being promised or sold something and getting something different. You've probably had an experience like that before. For us, it was restaurant.com. Uh, I don't know if you ever see restaurant.com is always selling like, hey, get $50 worth of gift cards for, to restaurants for $10. And that sounds like it, it's too good to be true because generally it is. But my wife didn't know that. And so she bought $50 worth of gift cards at restaurant.com restaurants for like $10. And she's so excited about it. She's like showing me I got us a deal. And I've never used it before, but I just have that kind of, I'm not sure if it's going to be a deal. But we go on, I start looking at, at restaurants that you can use, and there was a Mexican food restaurant in town that was, that was kind of new to, to Georgetown, and, and you could use it there. And so I, I went and took our gift card, applied it to that restaurant, printed off my gift certificate, had a big meeting that week with a, a large group of people that I was responsible for. I said, hey, let's meet at this restaurant, and because I've got $53 there, and so we can eat, and it won't be as expensive. We get there, and so, we're, we're, I mean, lots of people eating, and I'm like, order dessert. No big deal. You know, don't worry. Get whatever you want. Because in the back of my mind, I've got this gift card. When the, the server shows up, I hand it to him. He looks at me and he goes, oh, we don't recognize that. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Take those desserts back. Yeah, every one of them. Well, you know, we can't afford that now. 
So, we, we're, so I'm frustrated, right? So I go back and send a thing to restaurant.com, said, hey, the, you know, this company, this restaurant's not allowing it. They said, well, we're sorry. Uh, you can trade it out for anything else. So we trade it out into smaller denominations, like a $15 and a $15, because we're not going to eat $50 anywhere. And so we go, we got two restaurants in Round Rock, two Mexican food restaurants. We drive over on a date night to one. We've got our gift card. It's like $15 or $20 off, something like that. We pull in. It's closed. Not for the night. Closed for good. So we're like, okay, well, let's go to the other one. So we go to the other one. We pull up to the address, look at the name of the, the restaurant on our coupon. It does not match the restaurant title. So we leave and we go someplace else. Go back online. Going to switch them out. Find the restaurant that we went to that had the name change, and it's now on there. And so I'm like, okay, great. So we print that off, and we go and have a, it was a great meal, and it worked. So I'm like $15 down. I still got $35 to go. So I tell Amanda, let's just use these all up at this one restaurant that we know works. So I print off some more, change it over. We go to that restaurant another date night. It's now another named restaurant. So I turn it over to a, I'm going to be in Marble Falls one evening. So I look on, find a restaurant in Marble Falls, print it off, drive over there, get to the restaurant. It's closed. I mean, just, I'm to the point, like, like two years later, I still have like $30 worth of restaurant.com gift cards I can't use. I keep telling Amanda, I will, I will use them at some point. And then we are never, ever buying any, don't ever buy anything from that. You had that kind of experience? And you're frustrated because you, you, you told me you were going to give me this and, and you didn't? I have all kinds of stories like that. I mean, I've got one like for like a living social, a mobile detailing company. Oh, great. They'll come out, clean your car. Uh, they don't ever show up or respond to emails or anything like that. And uh, it's just frustrating. If you've had people like that in your life who said that they were going to do something and didn't, or more importantly, said they were going to be something for you or in your life and they weren't, Somebody, maybe it was a coworker, that said, listen, I, I'm gonna, I, I am your guy or I am your girl. I, I, if, if I get on this team, I'm going to change everything. And they weren't really lying. They changed everything. They just changed it for the worse. You, know? you, you thought they were going to change it for the better. And you don't want to be around that person. You have somebody that's a friend, that they claim to be a friend, that they've got your back, but they actually stab you in the back. You don't want to be around that friend. I don't want to shop at restaurant.com. You don't want to be around those people because when someone says they're going to do or be something for us in our life and they come out and they're something totally different, it's, it's a turnoff. It pushes us away. So the overarching question for us, is it any wonder why a world that's outside of this building this morning is not interested in Christianity? Is it any wonder if we have a reaction to people who say, I will do this or I will be this, and then they don't, and we're turned off, is it any reason for us to be uh, like blown away that the world who looks at people who claim to be Christians, and I'm not talking about necessarily us, even though we do fitness category, I'm going to talk about believers or Christians in, in general that say, I follow Jesus. My life has been transformed. I am different on Sunday from 11 to noon. But when I go to the restaurant for lunch afterwards, I treat my waiter or waitress different. Monday through Saturday, no one looks at us and sees anything different than what they're living. They look at us and they go, you're, you're promising one thing. You're saying you're this, but you're something different. You're, you're like the, the religious version of restaurant.com, and I'm not interested. I'm not, I'm not shopping there. You say that you love God. 
but you, you don't know His Word. You, you only open a Bible occasionally when you're in church, but you, you love God, but you don't, you don't spend time with Him? You love God, but, and this is, this is the statistics, and, and I'm sure some of us fall in this category. Statistics say, and this is kind of crazy, it's changed so drastically over the last 40 years that about 40 years ago, if you asked a person who was a follower of Jesus how many times they committed Christian or, or if they said that they were a committed Christian, they, they worshiped corporately at church three to four times a month. Now that has dropped down to one time a month. That many people go, oh man, I am a follower of Jesus. And then the research says, how often do you attend worship together and worship the, the Savior with your church family? That often they'll go, once a month and I'm in. That, that, that's not even odd to us anymore. But it's odd to a world that looks at us and goes, listen, I, I love the Dallas Cowboys. And every Sunday I'm on a couch watching them because I love them. You love Jesus, but, but you make it once a month. I'm not sure that you really love God like you say. And I'm not questioning, if that's you, I'm not questioning that. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm saying the world looks at that, and they go, eh, probably not. You love people? You love God? And you love people? You don't act any different than the other people at work. That's what the world looks at us and says. You talk like they talk. You do the same things. You go to the same places. You have the same attitude. You gossip about your back, just like everybody else. In fact, that guy over there, he's not even a believer. He's not religious at all, and he's more moral than all the other guys that say they go to church. And so the world looks at us, and they go, listen, I'm, I'm just not interested in what you're selling. And they throw out the word that if you're a follower of Jesus, you hate to hear. The H word. Hypocrite. Right? I hate that word. I hate that word. Probably because it's me a lot of times. That's why I hate it. But, but, but that's what the world looks at and they go, you know, I'm just not interested. There was a study done. Gabe Lyons turned it into a book uh, that Barna Research did called Unchristian. I did a series on it several years ago back when we were doing a Sunday night worship. Kind of just walk through the way the world sees us. And of the eight or nine things, he said, here's the way that the world looks at and sees followers of Jesus. Hypocrite was one of the top things that came about. And here's what the research said. 84% of young people who were not followers of Jesus, he called them the uns, they're unbelievers. 84% said that they knew someone who was a committed Christian. And at the same time, they said 15% of those people said that the person they knew had a radically different life than somebody else. 84% know a believer, but only 15% know someone that has faith that's changing their life and different. Well, that was a concern in Jesus' day as well. 2,000 years later, and it's the same song, it's just another verse. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about on Wednesday night with students and hope you will explore as a family in Matthew chapter 21. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, flip over there, and we're just going to look at two verses. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. It says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. We're talking about Jesus. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. We're going to handle that this week. Now, these passages of Scripture that we're looking at, our ministry team has come back and said, uh, hey, we want you to talk about. 
And so they gave me a list of, here's some Bible stories that are stranger things. And if you've ever watched the TV show Stranger Things, they've got a set that they're going to try to just get that in the way that we're thinking. And so this is one of the verses they came and they said, hey, this is weird. We don't, we don't understand, teenagers saying, we don't understand why Jesus, who seems to be like, throughout Scripture, like a pretty cool guy. I mean, he's healing people, he loves people. They go, we don't understand why Jesus, because this is what it looks like, that he gets up one morning, he's hungry, and he goes over to the fig tree, and there's no fruit there, and he has one of those Snickers commercial moments, right? Where he's like, he's hungry, and so he's angry, and he like, curses the tree, and is like, you'll never produce fruit again, and it says it began to, it withered, begin to wither immediately. And so they, well, I, we don't get, and then that's kind of, Jesus goes on and starts talking about something else. And they go, we don't, we don't, what, what is that about? Like, Maybe Jesus is just having a bad day like the rest of us. We just can't wither trees. Well, to, to understand what's happening here, just like last week when we looked at Elisha and the she-bears, we've got to get back into the context of what's happening because there is a much larger story happening that when we jump into just two verses, it does look like Jesus is having a, a hungry Snickers moment, but that's not necessarily what's happening. Jesus has, in the context of this story, and you, you can read it if you want to go back and read the chapter ahead and, and, and the verses around, Jesus has walked into Jerusalem for the very last time. We're now days, hours away from the crucifixion and what will become the resurrection, but this is, this is the end. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It is a, a holy and religious holiday festival. The people have come from all over Israel to come and worship. This is, this is the biggest day on the Jewish calendar, the most spiritual day or, or time. And Jesus has a moment that fits in the understanding of all that. Before we unpack that, I want you to go to Luke chapter 13. I'm only going to have you look in two different verses today. Luke chapter 13 is our last one. Because I want you to see that there was some foreshadowing here. In Luke chapter 13, verse 6, Jesus has told his disciples a story, a parable, well before this moment when the tree happens. So when the tree moment happens, the disciples are going to go back to this story in Luke chapter 13, verse 6. It says, and he, Jesus, told this parable, a story with a point. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've become seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Why should it suck up the nutrients out of the good soil? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around and pour on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the disciples have had this story previously to this moment where they've heard this that Jesus said, and, and we don't even get in here where the Jesus tells them what it means. He might have. They don't record that. But the story of this fig tree that's not producing, and it's not a real fig tree. It's just a story. It's just an illustration. And he says, hey, the fig tree is not producing. There's no fruit. Cut it down. And they decide, you know what? Give it a little more time. Give it another chance to see what will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then cut it down because it's dead. It's useless. All it is is draining resources from other trees around it. So that story is rattling around in the disciples' brains. They go into Jerusalem, and the day before the actual fig tree is withered, they go to the temple again, holy moment, religious festival, and they walk in, and Jesus gets upset. 
And so some people would look and go, maybe he's just having an anger hangover from the night before. Jesus overturns some tables in the temple. Now, he doesn't do it out of it. He takes time. In fact, one of the gospel writers says that he took time, fashioned a, a whip out of cords. This was not like a just, you're going to blow up moment. Again, Jesus was strategic in what he's doing. But what, what he understood and what the disciples understood that we miss is that worship had become big business. You see, you've got to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and you're coming from all over the place. And you're going to offer sacrifice for your family. But, but it's a long journey. You're not, you're not just getting on the highway. You're not just, you know, 20 minutes away, coming down, you know, I-35, 40 minutes away, you know, if you're on I-35. You're not just coming a, a short distance. You're coming a distance that's several days. It's, it's, it, you're going to stay for several days. And one of the things that's difficult when you're traveling with your family and all of these things is, is to bring all of these animals or whatever that you're going to sacrifice during this festival time. And so people were setting up shop and going, listen, you need a lamb for your family. But you came on a three-day journey, and you don't have one, or your lamb didn't make it, or it wandered off, or you chose not to bring it for whatever reason. Hey, I tell you what, I've got one here for you. And a lamb usually sells for like $30, but this is supply and demand, so we've got one here for $120. And people were stuck, whether because they made a bad choice or whatever, for whatever reason, this, this moment that was supposed to be about remembering when God had saved the people from Egypt in a moment where they all came to rally and worship together, it became this moment about who could turn the biggest prophet. And Jesus sees this in the temple and says, you know what? Your hearts are so far from God. You are so, you are so far from worshiping and loving God and remembering what he did that all you care about is your bank account. And Jesus overturns those tables in the temple and makes a point and says, you guys better get your act together. And the next morning he gets up and he walks out, coming out of this this moment that happened where, where the, 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 the religious temple, the holy temple, the temple in Jerusalem is a facade, it's empty, and he walks over and sees a fig tree. Mark tells us it was before season, but the leaves were there. And so what we know is that there should have been some, some fruit on the end. It wouldn't have been fully ripe, but they would have been there. And somebody who was hungry, like Jesus was, could have eaten. And so he sees the leaves. This tree is in bloom. This tree is ready. He goes over and inspects it, and this tree is empty. There's nothing there. Remember this story about the fig tree is rattling around in the back of the mind? But in the story, we're going to give it one more year. But the game's changed. We're days away from the crucifixion. The world and the spiritual world as the Jews and, and as we will know it is about to change radically. And Jesus is saying, listen, there is no more time. This is the moment. The king has come. The king has showed up in his city. God has arrived. And the warnings have been out there. You've heard the stories. And I've come and I've looked at the temple, and it looks great on the outside. It looks like it is selling a love for God. It looks, it's hustling and bustling, and people have come from all over. This looks good on the outside, but you are empty. The temple is burnt out on the inside. And the point that Jesus wants his disciples to, to understand in what becomes a visual and experiential teaching moment. It's not, a, it's not a matter of Jesus being angry and cursing a tree. All he did was, was let the tree continue being what it was, a non-fruit-producing tree. He didn't, he didn't wither something that was living and healthy. It already wasn't healthy, and Jesus just confined it to where it was headed anyway. And he does it 
to make this visual and experiential illustration to say, listen, the inside matters more than the outside. The, the, the game of religion, the game of, of showing up for worship when there's nothing in the inside it is an empty, wasted practice, and I'm not interested in it at all. Jesus' point here is what's in the inside is more important than what's on the outside. In the American church today, we just talked about it, the statistics tell us 84% of young unbelievers know someone who is a believer, a follower of Jesus, but only 15% know someone who has the inside changed. And we're, we're good at the outside, really good. But the message that Jesus had for his disciples 2,000 years ago is recorded here in the scripture for us today. Jesus wants us to understand and know I'm more concerned about what's inside than outside. I don't want the temple to be a facade. I want there to be life-giving, Holy Spirit of God inside of you, changing you, transforming you, making you different in your community and in your families and, and, and where you work and in your church because God lives in you. So what do we do? Uh, it's three things I just want us to think through this week and maybe write these things down and come back to them as you're talking to, to your kids. First thing is we've got to be growing. We talked about saying that we will be something but not, this, this, is, this is key. We've got to be a growing follower of Jesus. Not, not, not just so that we can not be a hypocrite. We, we need to be growing because that's what God has for us. Each day should be different. We if you look back on your spiritual journey from a year ago, you ought to be further along, not just in knowledge and another uh, Wednesday night Bible study or, or got another devotional checked off. There ought to be some character development in us. There's probably some things in your life that the Lord has been working on or, or has been trying to work on, uh, maybe for a short time of change, maybe some things that are a long time. For me, man, it's humility. God has been working on, on humility in my life for years. And I see growth, but I'm not done yet. Sarcasm and loving people well with my mouth, something God's been working on me for a long time in very small incremental changes. But I can look back and I can see, I can see some growth. Not there yet, not even close. But I see these things that God is, is working in my life and we should, we should be growing. For us, but also for those around us. I mean, do you, realize, do you realize the ramifications that rest on us? That our actions, when we say, I follow Jesus, and the world looks at us and goes, I don't see it, do you realize that there are eternal ramifications for that? That there are people that God has placed in and around your circle where you work, where you live, the friends that some of your kids have, some of your, your, your kids' friends' parents who don't know the Lord and they've had some moments in their life where they might have considered Jesus, where the Spirit began to convict them, they began to think through that and the best representation of Jesus they had was one of us and they looked at us and went, eh, I don't think that's the answer because there was no life-giving Spirit moving in our life because we had become a hollow temple we become a fig tree that had no figs. So it is about us and our relationship with the Lord. When we say be growing, but it's also a responsibility to our teenagers. You know 
one of the number one uh, reasons for a, a young person to grow up and become an adult who follows Jesus is what they see in you. You are going to recreate a follower of Jesus that is in your home right now that is going to more than likely look like you. For some of us, we go, Lord, that is, that is hard, and man, I thank you, and I'm gonna keep working hard. Some of us, the blood just drained out of our face because we've thought in our minds, if I just keep bringing my kids up to church and I drop them off at, youth, at, at the youth group, then they're going to fix them and they're going to send them out and they're not going, they're not going to make some of the decisions I made. That, that's not what the research tells us. And it's not what Scripture gives us a picture of. Because your, your kids do this. They come and they hear me talk. They talk in a small group. They hear from a pastor. And they go home to a, a mom or a dad who is following Jesus. And at this age, they're smart enough to go, this doesn't match this. Why in the world would I get up on a Sunday morning, get dressed on one of two days I have off to go sit in church and do all that? It doesn't make a difference in my life. Sleeping in makes a bigger difference than faith. And they grow up and they have your grandchildren. And your grandchildren grow up with a best-case scenario of not being like grandma or grandpa, but being like their mom or dad. There, there, are, some, there are some heavy ramifications here. Some of you have, have teenagers. They're not in youth ministry anymore. They're in college or they're, they're adult children. Do you realize the kind of influence you still have on them as they look at you and your heritage? As they're making decisions as young adults to see the, 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 the spirit transformational work in your life is huge. But we have to be growing. Second thing is this, we've got to be authentic. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. You are at some point, probably on a daily basis, going to be a hypocrite. You, you won't be perfect. But we've got to be authentic. We, got, we have to be real. When we do drop the ball and we blow it, we've got to go and ask forgiveness of the people involved, the Lord and, and anyone else that we hurt. When we gossip and we shouldn't, we've got to own it. We can't just pretend it didn't happen. We've got to be able to say to people, listen, I am a follower of Jesus. I'm just not a very good one. But that's authenticity. And when a lost world is looking at it, they see your authenticity, and they go, you know what, I'll buy into that. Because they know deep in their heart that they have goals for their life, and they have a moral code they're living by. It may not be like yours, but they've got things they believe, and they realize, you know what, I don't really do all the things that I do, but this person, they, at least they're being real with me, they're being authentic, they're chasing after this Jesus, so at least tell me why you're chasing after Jesus and who he is, and all of a sudden they're open to the gospel because we were authentic and real. I mean, we need that. I love, I, I love the story of the guy... He wrote, he's a journalist in Chicago um, named Bill Hillman. He wrote a book called How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona. You know the, what the Bulls of Pamplona is? That's, you know, where they, it's that city, it's a 300,000 person city in uh, Spain. And, and every year they, they bring out the bulls and people go running through the streets and bulls chase them through the streets. You've seen that like movies and stuff. Uh, Hemingway wrote a book in, back in the 20s that kind of brought this to the national consciousness. It's like a nine-day party. And people, you know, people have on their bucket list, I wanna, I'm going to run with the bulls. Well, this guy, Bill Hillman, he's a 32-year-old writer from Chicago. He's a journalist. Well, he and another guy co-authored a book, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona. Even though he 
never ran it. But then he did. He said, you know what? We're going to go do it. And, 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 of course, got into kind of this bucket list moment, wrote it off, and, and here come all the bulls, and they go through, and he makes it. But what he didn't know is that there was a 1,300-pound bull that had lagged behind the initial charge, a bull named Bravito. And as he wasn't paying attention, the bull came down the street and gored him in the thigh, gored another guy in the chest. What I love about the story is the co-author said this afterwards, I guess we're going to have to update the book. (laughs) Right? I love it. I love it. Hey, how to survive the bulls of Pamplona? We didn't do so well. I got gored in the thigh. A guy standing next to me got hit in the chest with an expert standing there. But, but, but I love the authenticity to go, hey, it looks like we've got to fix this book. We, we learned something new along the way, and it's changing my perspective. You're not going to be perfect. Be authentic. And say, when, when people call you the H word and they say hypocrite, man, you're right, I am. Let me ask your forgiveness. Here's what I'm learning through that. Here's what the Lord is teaching me. And I owe you an apology, and I would love for you to keep me accountable on what God is doing in my life. You know what kind of game-changing statement that is to somebody that's looking at faith? It's huge. We've got to be growing. We've got to be authentic. And we've got to be forgiving. If you're not a believer, cut us some slack. Because here's what happens. It is very easy from, a, from an unbeliever standpoint to use the H word, to throw out hypocrite. That's cheap and easy because, it, because it's true of everybody, true of the person that says it. And, and what I'd say to the person who's not a follower of Jesus that, that uses the word hypocrite, and I, I would ask them this, if you're looking for perfect and you're looking at me, you're looking at the wrong person. And you shouldn't be looking at me. If you're looking for perfection, you should be looking at Jesus because Jesus is perfect. I'm just a flawed, broken follower that's trying to figure it out. So cut me some slack. But also, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, I mean, we've got to be graceful to each other. We've got, we've got to be forgiving of those other believers. You know what? There's some people in your small group. There's some people in your church that are going to blow it. I, I would hate to be a megachurch pastor. The, the, the stress that those guys live under and when they fall or when they resign or when they do something that's on a national stage, man, do you know who the, the most mean and angry and hateful critics are? Other believers. Because you weren't perfect from the stage. And we've got to be forgiving of each other. I love the illustration because I can really lean into this. You ever been to like a junior high band concert, the high school orchestra that tries to do like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and it's absolutely terrible, it's horror, it's not, it's not even close, Beethoven's rolling in his grave, you know, as, as these 15-year-olds are trying to play this masterpiece that, that the Chicago Symphony can't even hit, but we're forgiving, aren't we? We look, at, we look at those kids, and we go, man, they're trying. They're doing something difficult. And it's, I mean, my ears might be bleeding a bit, but I love them, and they're, and they're giving it their best shot to aim to let us hear this masterpiece. Isn't that, isn't that kind of what we're, what we're doing? As followers of Jesus, trying to imitate and replay the life 
of the Savior? It's going to be messy. It's going to be off-key sometimes. We're going to miss a few notes. But, but we can be graceful. Because you know what? That may be the only time someone even hears that Ninth Symphony from Beethoven. may not be perfect, but maybe the only time they hear that. We need to be graceful and forgiving of other believers who have not lived up to our standard of perfection and we're the ones that want to call them hypocrite because they may be doing their very best and they may be the best Jesus somebody sees. So Jesus teaches this parable of the fig tree. And then he gets to Jerusalem for his final days before crucifixion, before time is going to change in, in ways that's never changed before as God is going to be crucified and then be resurrected. And in that moment, he comes to this temple and he sees that it's this hollow act of worship, that it, 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 there, there is no transformation happening, there is no worship happening. And the next morning, he gets up and sees a literal fig tree and says, there is no fruit and withers the tree to say, judgment is coming. Judgment is here. Start bearing fruit. Start living what you say you're going to live. Start being the person that a follower of Jesus is. I'll share with you this last story and then I'll let you talk. Some of you remember, this is a little bit before my time, but I remember. Do you remember the Crying Indian, the 1971 commercial? Here's a picture of him. Remember this guy? It's a little bit before I was born, but I remember seeing this commercial of the Indian who. Uh, was canoeing down the polluted river and it, it was for the Keep America Beautiful campaign. Uh, voted one of the 50 greatest commercials of all time. That's probably why we still kind of know it. I mean, our teenagers won't. He's, he's canoeing down that river and the camera zooms in and that tear is running down his cheek. Kind of iconic commercial. Guy went on because of this commercial. Was in all kinds of westerns. Was kind of playing the part of the noble Indian. He started with John Wayne. Started with Ronald Reagan. He's got a, a star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. Some other Indian actors who knew him and saw him went, something's just not right. They dug into his life and discovered both his parents are full-blooded Italians from Louisiana. All of a sudden, you look at him and you go, okay, I see an Italian. Uh, he's not an Indian at all. They went to the city that he grew up in and kind of like, hey, I mean, like, y'all know the guy. But they were just so in love with the fact that, you know, they had a guy, you know, that was from their city that had made it. But here's, here's the crazy thing. After being exposed for years and years after that, he still continued to wear the braided wig, wasn't even his real hair, the headdress and moccasins, and would talk to people about the connection with the great spirit still playing the game even though he'd been exposed as a fraud. Let, let's not have that be us that are playing the game of, I know what a Christian says, I know what a Christian's supposed to look like, and I'm going to keep that game up as best I can, but inside there is no life, there's no, there's no depth, there's no life-giving spirit. Bear fruit, be growing, be authentic be forgiving. It will change your families. It will change our world. It will change us. Let's pray.